And we're back. <laughs> so I'm sorry about that, y'all. Uh, I apologize. So Corinth Baptist Church, they had a hard time loving each other. They had a hard time using their spiritual gifts. They had a hard time serving together. Uh, in general, they had a hard time being mature Christians. So Paul wrote the letter of 1 Corinthians to correct them as to how they should be living the Christian life. So today we're going to start a series that if my math is right, is going to last nine weeks that I'm going to call I Love My Church. That it's going to have to do with how we ought to love each other, how we ought to love people outside, how we ought to love people inside, basically how we as a church ought to think of love. So um, if you will stand with me out of the respect for the reading of God's word, um, normally I read out of the New King James Version, but for the purposes of this series, I'm going to be reading out of the English Standard Version, and I'll explain why in just a second. So 1 Corinthians 13, starting in verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for the opportunity to study your word. Lord, help us learn as Christians how to love like you love. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So, love. What is love? Um, as we study this, it, it would help if we had a definition of love that matches the way that Paul was speaking about it. In English, we have pretty much the words love and like. Have you ever heard somebody say something to the effect of, I love you, I just don't like you? You ever heard somebody say something like that? Um, it, it's, it's hard to communicate about love when in the English language we have one word that can mean so many things. Uh, in Greek, they didn't necessarily have that problem. They had it, at the bare minimum, they had three different words uh, for love. So I'm going to let someone much smarter than me uh, define it. This is from John MacArthur. He did a word study on this word agape, which is the Greek word for love that we're talking about. Agape, or love, is one of the rarest words in ancient Greek literature, but one of the most common in the New Testament. Unlike our English love, it never refers to romantic love for which eros was used and which does not appear in the New Testament. Nor does it refer to mere sentiment, a pleasant feeling about something or someone. It does not mean close friendship or brotherly love, for which philia is used. Nor does agape mean charity, a term the King James translators carried over from Latin and which in English has long been associated only with giving to the needy. This chapter is itself the best definition of agape. So what Paul is going to teach us today is the value of this kind of self-sacrificing, selfless, Christ-like love in the church. And he goes so far as to say that if you don't have love, any other value you might have to your local church body is completely negated by that lack. Love is that important. So we're going to introduce the rest of 1 Corinthians 13 by talking about things that are worth, worth less than love 
And the first thing that I want us to see is that without love, talent is useless. Without love, talent is useless. Look at verse 1. Paul says, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. A noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now it's going to get uncomfortable in here for the next couple of minutes because we're a bunch of Baptists. Right? That should be very clear based on what just happened up here this morning. Sometimes topics come up as we move through passages that we would probably not choose to speak on. But I'm an expositor, so guess what? If the Bible says it, I get to talk about it. And in this passage, we get to talk a little bit about tongues. We uncomfortable yet? Hope not. Speaking in tongues is not Paul's central concern in this passage. Love is. But to understand his argument requires us to understand what he's talking about. Speaking in tongues is clearly defined as a real spiritual gift in the pages of Scripture. The gift is not a myth. You may also look throughout Scripture from cover to cover, if you like, and try and find the passage where we are told this gift has ceased to be given. I'll tell you how that search is going to go. You're not going to find it. That gift has never been in Scripture rescinded. Also, God could conceivably give any of us here today this gift and provided it were practiced within the bounds in Scripture, I would not stop it as pastor of this church. But for a spiritual gift that is so clearly defined in the pages of Scripture, I don't know that there is a spiritual gift that is misunderstood more than the gift of tongues. And to understand it, and thereby to understand the rest of this verse, we got to go back and figure out what it means. And we got to go back to Genesis 11 to figure that out. So in Genesis 11, you get the story of the city of Babel. Anybody remember the Tower of Babel from Sunday school? Yeah, Genesis 11 is the city uh, of Babel, and they try and build the tower that goes to the heaven. And rather than filling the earth and subduing it to pursue God's glory, the mission of the citizens of Babel was to build a city and build a tower to keep themselves from filling the earth. They wanted to stay in one spot, and they wanted to glorify themselves. So they've united around this anti-God's agenda human goal. And so God's already promised he's not going to destroy the world with a flood again, like he did under Noah. So he can't just flood the earth to stop them from doing what they're doing. So God does what God is best at. He gets creative. And he decides that the way he is going to stop them is to jumble up their common language that they all shared so that they could not pursue their ungodly goals. So you read Genesis 11, verses 6 and 7. The Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they'll do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So now that they can't understand each other anymore, it's going to be hard for them to work together to accomplish their goals, right? Does that, does that make sense? God says, I don't want to destroy them, but I also don't want them to keep going, so I'm going to take away what they're using to work together because I don't want them to accomplish their goal. An inverse event happens in the New Testament. The actual reverse of Babel happens in the book of Acts. Before Jesus ascends back to his father, 
Remember what Jackson just confessed, that he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Before that event, Jesus promised his church that when he went back to his Father, a helper would be sent and would give them power to be his witnesses to the end of the earth. All right, Jesus says this in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So Jesus says that the helper is going to come, and this event happens in Acts chapter 2. They're all gathered, the church is all gathered in one place for the Jewish festival of Pentecost, and they're all worshiping, and they're all waiting, and next thing you know, there's the sound of a mighty rushing wind, and the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in the early church. That's the, when the Holy Spirit broke into church life with Acts chapter 2. And verse 4 in Acts 2 says, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Church, do we believe the Bible? Yes. So this means we believe this happened. Correct? Okay. So the Holy Spirit enabled them to speak in other tongues. Now, what other tongues are we talking about? Well, if you look down at the end of Acts chapter 2 and look at verses 7 through 11, we can hear from the very mouths of the onlookers what was going on. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So what was happening was all these men who are from Galilee who probably speak the same language. They're all speaking the gospel truth but people from around the world are hearing it in their own language. That is a biblical definition of what the gift of tongues empowered by the Holy Spirit is. It's not speaking gibberish that has no meaning. It's speaking a human language that other humans can understand when you yourself don't know how to speak that language naturally. That's what the biblical gift of tongues is. The gift of tongues was a gift of God given to the church in order to make ministry easier. It's the reverse of Babel. He scattered their languages at Babel so that they could not accomplish their goals. He gave the gift of tongues in Acts chapter 2 so that the church could accomplish his. That's what tongues is. And the gift of tongues isn't mentioned much more in Scripture. God clearly continued giving it to members of the early church. We know this because this passage that we're studying today in 1 Corinthians, along with chapters 12 and 14, constitutes Paul rebuking the church at Corinth for actually being preoccupied with the gift of tongues. What does it mean to be preoccupied with something? That your focus is on something that it doesn't need to be on. That there's actually something more important that you should be worried about, but you're having a hard time focusing on it because you're paying attention to something else. It's worth noting that the Bible contains very little in the way of discussing this activity that is clearly supernatural intervention in human communication. If that started happening here, it would be the talk of the town for like months, wouldn't it? 
If somebody in this church stood up and started speaking Farsi, we would all be talking about it. And this happened routinely in the New Testament, but nobody ever talks about it. Why? Because it wasn't important. But the church at Corinth was preoccupied with it. The, the church at Corinth had elevated it to the supreme spiritual gift. And the modern charismatic movement does the same thing. It's preoccupied with the gift of tongues. And some sects of charismatics even view tongues as the evidence that someone has been saved and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. If you don't speak in tongues, they don't believe that the Holy Spirit dwells within you. It's that important. And these same sects point to the passage we're studying today in 1 Corinthians 13 and argue that there is some angelic or heavenly language that we should aspire to speak in. That that is somehow a great manifestation of the Holy Spirit if you start speaking angel talk. Well, I'm sorry if, if this is offensive, but anytime I've heard someone practice so-called angel talk, it sounds like monosyllabic babble that no linguist could ever discern with, if he had more language degrees than a thermometer. That's not what the Bible says, so I'm not going to entertain it as serious. Especially when Paul has an entire three chapters of one of his epistles rebuking the practice of that gift in such a way. The church was preoccupied with it. The Corinthian church and the modern charismatic movement have fallen into the same trap. It's preoccupation with talents, abilities, gifts. Call them what you like. Believing that merely possessing these gifts or these talents or these abilities makes you a prime church member. But I don't want to restrict this just to tongues. Because Paul's making the point, I don't care if you can speak in every single language known to man. I don't care if you can even speak angelic language. He's using hyperbole. He's going so far as to say if you could speak heaven's tongue natively, but you don't love anybody, your gift is useless to the church. Every single person who is a member of Stapleton Baptist Church is talented in some way. And I'm speaking assuming a converted membership. Okay? If you are a saved member of Stapleton Baptist Church, God has given you a spiritual gift that we need. If we didn't need the gift he'd given you, he would have either given you a different gift that we did need or gifted you for the church that you were at. But as it stands, you are here, you are saved, God's given you a gift, so the gift he's given you is the one that we need here. And it's important that we make use of those gifts. God gave them for the edification of his church, and he expects us to steward them well, just like he expects us to steward everything else that he's given us. But what happens when a sinful human being, by the way, to save people still sin? Yes, we do. What happens when a saved man, a saved woman, a saved boy, or a saved girl realizes, I got talent. I'm really good at this. It is possible to become puffed up, isn't it, church? It's possible to feel pride. 
it's possible to start seeing yourself as necessary for the functions of the church to continue. And it's possible that you start to look down your nose at other people who don't have a gift as important as yours. Y'all, the church is not a meritocracy. Just because you're good at something doesn't mean you get special treatment. Paul said it doesn't matter if you've mastered every single human language on earth and have started to explore fluency in angelic language. If you've got all the talent in the world but you don't have love, the beauty and splendor and efficacy of your gift has turned into nothing more than a gong or a clanging cymbal. And y'all, have you ever noticed that gongs and cymbals always add to other music and they're supposed to be kind of quiet in the background? What if we replaced the piano in this church with just somebody standing up here in this cutout with cymbals going bang, 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 bang? How many of y'all would, would skip the, the music part and just move on? That's because It's not pleasant to listen to. It's not enjoyable. That's not music. It's noise. And that's what every other talent or gift. Yes, divine gifts. Gifts that God has given you. If you exercise them, but you exercise them without love for God, for your fellow church member, for the lost. If you exercise them without love, they're useless. They're not going to accomplish anything. What if, how much would it help this church if I could preach the best sermons the world has ever heard, but routinely treated everybody in this church like garbage, how effective would those sermons be? Not very at all. What if, what if you could cook the best food, and y'all, there's some of y'all in here. I'm not talking about y'all being loveless. I'm talking about y'all cooks. What if somebody in here was divinely gifted to cook the best food anybody's ever put in their mouth. But you're so unpleasant, nobody wants to stand in the kitchen with you to do it. What if you could sing like an angel on Sunday, but routinely talk like a demon on Monday? How much good do those talents and gifts do you or the church? None. A lack of love can take something beautiful that God has given you and just render it totally ineffective. 1 Corinthians 14, 12, Paul says, So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, we want to see the gifts that God has given His people. We want to see Him enabling us to do things that we wouldn't be able to do without Him. Paul says, so since you're eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Do you know what the Holy Spirit wants more than He wants just about anything else? The Holy Spirit wants to build this church. That's why He gives you gifts. So He gives you gifts to build this church. But if you use them for your own personal gain, you use them looking down your nose at somebody else, you use them to feel self-important, like you're essential. Y'all, the truth is none of us are essential. I'm not essential to this church, and I'm the pastor. God could strike me dead right now and replace me with somebody just like me, and more, more, more likely better, next week if he wanted to. He could do that with any of us. It's his church. It's not mine. It's not yours. 
None of us are essential. There's only one man who's essential, and he's also God. His name's Jesus. And as long as he is behind the wheel, things are going to be fine. And we play for his team if we use the gifts he gives us to build up his church. So a lack of love does nothing but tear it down, regardless of how talented you might be. No talent is so valuable that it outweighs the need for love. So talents without love are useless. Second, I want us to see that confidence is useless without love. Now studying this, this was wild. This was absolutely wild. Look at verse 2. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. So there's a good amount of overlap between verses 1 and 2. In verse 1, Paul had to remind the talented for their need for love in ministry. And in verse 2, he had to remind the confident. I want you to consider the qualities of this hypothetical church member. First, he has prophetic powers. Okay, a prophet knows God's opinion of the present and his plans for the future. And he knows those things with 100% confidence because God's spoken to him. And our understanding of how prophecy functions in the modern church is irrelevant to this right now. Paul is speaking in a hypothetical. Okay, he's asking you to imagine a church member who has this. Okay, so imagine a member of Stapleton Baptist that with 100% certainty has the gift of prophecy. His prophetic power is real, so let's imagine this person. So he's got prophetic powers. Second, this same church member understands all mysteries and all knowledge. Leon Morris uh, explained these two Greek words this way. All mysteries, the Greek word mysterion, and all knowledge, the Greek word gnosis, point us to the sum of all wisdom, both human and divine. The knowledge that people gather for themselves is the word gnosis is very much like science. And the knowledge mysterion is knowledge that they could only have if it was revealed to them by God. They know them only because it's pleased God to reveal them. So not only can this church member speak prophetically, with confidence. He can also speak confidently regarding science, philosophy, politics, mathematics, all facets of biblical scholarship, all depths of theology, all the twists and turns of church history, all the comparative differences between Christianity and world religions. There is no discussion topic for which this hypothetical church member is not prepared. Intimidated yet? The same church member has been gifted with great faith. The kind of faith that could move mountains. And saving faith is not the kind of faith in question here, okay? Remember, Paul's writing this letter to the church. He is assuming a converted membership. So this person is saved, but this person is extra specially gifted with faith, which is a spiritual gift listed in Scripture, that some people just have insane amounts of faith. And by faith, Paul means the confidence that God is both able and willing to enact his plans for the church. This believer is acting in clear accordance with what Jesus said in Matthew 17. Now, I gave you the second half of verse 20, but I'm going to read the verses before that to put it in context. Matthew 17, starting in verse 14. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and said, kneeling before him, this is he's talking to Jesus, 
Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? That's not what you want Jesus to say to you, by the way. Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. And then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it'll move, and nothing will be impossible for you. So what had happened to Jesus' disciples is they saw this kid having seizures and throwing himself into water and fire and acting demonically, and they're like, uh, come out in the name of Jesus? Does that sound confident? No. They weren't actually sure that that authority was going to cast that demon out. They knew who Jesus was, but they got scared. Have you ever gotten scared since you've been saved? Does that mean that you don't believe in Jesus? No. But have you ever met somebody that, man, it didn't matter what they were staring down. They were just like, oh, God's got it. And they just walked straight into it. And you're like, whoo, I wish I could have some of that. You ever met somebody like that? Some people are gifted with that kind of faith. And Paul is saying this person has got that in spades. So they got prophetic powers, they're smart as a whip, and they're 100% confident that God can do whatever He wants. Of course, it's not the faith itself that moves the mountain, it's, it's, it's God, it's the object behind the faith that moves the mountain. This person sounds like somebody you'd want to be a member of your church, don't they? I'd want them. Prophetic power divinely gifted knowledge, confidence in God's ability and willingness to do anything. In most cases, we would say we wanted that person to be a member of this church, but Paul gives us one case where you wouldn't. This person doesn't have love. In fact, he says this person is nothing. And that's not too harsh to say. That's what the Bible says, so that's what who says? That's what God says. Right? So, so the prophetic gift and the knowledge and the faith-based confidence are real, but this person is nothing to the church because he's probably a bull in a china shop. Look at Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. Paul says, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We're supposed to be working together. And acknowledging that every single person has gifts that we don't have. Because if any of us had all the gifts we needed, then God wouldn't have, God would spread us out. But God's put us together and gifted us differently so that we need each other. I want you to imagine a man who knows the right thing to do, he knows the right way to do it. He might even be the only one who knows the right way to do it. But he struggles to get people on board with him because he doesn't know how to speak the truth in love. Ever met anybody like that? Are they pleasant to work with? 
Imagine a lady qualified for an appropriate position within the church. She speaks the truth. She speaks it confidently. She speaks it informedly. But she doesn't speak it lovingly. And as a result, she loses her audience. And that's a tragedy for everybody involved, isn't it? Because remember, Paul's talking about somebody that God has given these gifts for real. The folks that God has given the knowledge really do have reason to be confident because God's given them such a reason. But because of their hatefulness, their rudeness, their coldness, nobody wants to listen to them or trust them with responsibility. And so as a result, the church stumbles through some really dark spots because they have ignored the very person that God had given them to help them. And then and as a result, the person that God's given the knowledge starts to resent everybody else in the church because they are sure that they know the right thing to do, but nobody will listen to him. And the church comes to resent the individual because they feel like this person feels entitled to a hearing while treating everybody else like trash. Now, y'all, that is a recipe for a dead or dying church. You can be confident in the gift that God has given you and still be humble. You can be confident in the knowledge that God has endowed you with and still communicate with love. Y'all, there is no excuse to open your mouth and tear down another member of this church under any circumstance whatsoever. I don't care if you know what they did way back when. I don't care if your knowledge is correct. I don't care if you understand how they've always been. I say this Lovingly. Hush. And I don't have experience of this ever happening at Stapleton. And I'd like to keep it that way. Maybe it has in the past. Maybe you have knowledge of it happening in the past. And maybe that knowledge is true. But Paul just told us, Having confidence in something you know that is true does not give you an excuse to beat people over the head with it and not be loving. Let me tell you something. If somebody walks in that back door and they're looking for Jesus because the Holy Spirit's working on them, and you got all the best theology, you got all the best gospel sharing techniques, you got all the best apologetic rebuttals to any scientific explanation they have for why they've rejected the gospel thus far, and you beat them over the head with it, and you make them feel stupid, and you make sure that they know you were the intelligent big dog on the block, and they've been so dumb to not come to Jesus so far. You know the funny thing that happens when you make somebody feel like they don't want to be somewhere is that they decide not to come back. We don't want to be that church, do we? No, we don't. And that's not been my experience here. But the Bible says just because you're confident in something you know doesn't mean that that's an excuse to say it without love. 
You can never know enough to outweigh your need for love. And then finally, generosity is useless without love. Generosity is useless without love. Look at verse 3. Paul says, If I give away all I have and deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now, there are a couple of interesting textual things going on here. First, when he says give away, this, this Greek word that he's using is the word sopiso. Isn't that a fun word? Excuse me, so miso. So the, the, that's, that tasty soup you get when you go to the hibachi restaurant, so miso. Maybe nobody likes hibachi. I love it. But the Greek word is so miso. And it typically means to parcel something out bit by bit. And so you would expect a grammatical tense here that is ongoing action. It's something that takes a long time, but that's not the tense that Paul uses. Paul uses a tense unique to Greek, which is aorist, which means this is a one-off action. He just gives it all away right then. He goes from being financially stable to being penniless in a matter of moments. It's extreme giving. Okay? So that's, that's this first word. The second phrase, if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, there is a manuscript discrepancy in this part of the verse where the Greek manuscripts have two different words right there. One comes out, give my body to be burned, and the other one comes out, give my body in order to boast. The difference between the two words is one letter. So at some point, a scribe wrote one or the other, and we don't know which one was the original one. But... I'm telling you this because I don't want anybody to be like, mm -hmm, see, your pastor doesn't even know what the Bible says. Yes, I do. I looked. It doesn't change the interpretation of the verse at all if it's burn or to boast. Because we've already seen at the end of the verse exactly what Paul says they're trying to do. What does he say you gain if you do this? Nothing, right? So this person is either giving away all their stuff and giving their body up. Now, what does it mean to give your body to boast? In what way? It seems to mean to sacrifice your body. So let's say the manuscript says burn. You're giving up your body. Let's say the manuscript says give my body to, be, to, to boast. You give up your body. Either way, you're trying to gain something from it. You're trying to get something out of it. I believe on the context surrounding these words that the, 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 the manuscript evidence that renders it attributing a boastful motive is probably correct because of the context that Paul gives us where he says, I gain nothing. This person's trying to benefit from giving all their stuff away. So in verse 3, Paul's describing a church member who is willing to exhibit extreme generosity without hesitation, but also without love. If boast is the correct reading, we already know what these church members would be willing to do things for. But if burn's the correct reading, the difference in interpretation is minimal if it exists at all. Paul tells the Corinthians he would gain nothing by undertaking the actions he describes. Look at what Jesus says in Luke 6, 34 and 35. He says, even if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting what? Nothing in return, and your reward will be great, 
and you'll be sons of the Most High, for He's kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Let me ask you this question. Jesus said to lend when you expect nothing in return. But if you lend expecting nothing in return, are you really lending? No, you're not. What are you doing? You're giving. So let's flip this around and put the shoe on the other foot. If you give expecting to get something in return, are you really giving? No, you're not. You're investing. You're purchasing. I know it. Banks do it all the time. They give their money out to somebody who needs it to accomplish their goals so that they can earn a return on their investment. Giving to a church does not make you a bank investing in a borrower. Being a member of a church is not the same as being a member of a country club. Your tithes and offerings are not dues and membership fees. A member who can give more is not entitled to greater influence and privilege within a church than a member who can give less. A healthy church does not prioritize ministry to people who are givers over those who don't contribute to the church's bottom line. And God will not bless a church who does so. Listen to James 2 verses 1 through 4. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, stop church, who's more likely to give? The rich man. Woo, I bet his tithes and offerings would make that building fund just go woo. We wouldn't ever have any financial problems if we can get that guy to join and we can get him to start giving. Oh, that'd solve so many problems. We need to treat him real well. That guy over there, he can't give nothing. But Jesus loves you. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over here or you sit at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? There is a great danger in viewing your gifts to the church as leverage for influence over its ministry. There is nothing loving about that. Imagine a hypothetical word. And I want to say this, and I want to say this clearly. I'm not saying this tongue-in-cheek. This that I'm about to describe has never happened to me at Stapleton Baptist Church. Do y'all hear that? I'm not lying. God is my witness. This has never happened here. I want you to imagine a situation in which a member comes to the pastor disgruntled about a particular choice of ministry or choice of programming and says something like this. Pastor, you know, my wife and I have contributed financially to this church for a long time. But if you keep going down this road that you're talking about going down, I don't know if we're going to be able to support the church in the same way. Do you hear what I'm saying? It happens every week in churches all over the place that folks look at their pastors and say, you need my money, so you'll do my bidding. This member is looking to gain something out of his generosity, power. This believer's giving is not motivated by love 
for God, for the church, for the ministry of the church that belongs to God. There's no place for that in the body of Christ. I choose to, I chose today, now, now second quick point, I chose today to spend the bulk of my time discussing twisted concepts of giving within the church, but there's another misunderstanding that we've got to talk about before we close out. 1 Corinthians is written to a church. Now, it's written to a crazy church, but it's written to a church. And the church very often welcomes in curious outsiders, people who don't know Christ but are interested to come see what all the fuss here is about. And we love y'all. If there are any of y'all here today who aren't Christians, who, who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, and you're here just hanging out to see what this is all about, we're super glad to have y'all here. But I want to warn you, the church does not have the same relationship with money that the rest of the world does. The one that we serve does not sell grace and mercy. Your bank account, I promise you, is not big enough to pay the price of your soul. It doesn't matter how much you give. It doesn't matter how much you bequest. It doesn't matter. I hope and pray that you never try that you never have to stand before Jesus and try and justify your place in heaven by producing a contribution statement. I hope that that never happens. The gift of God has never been for sale. It's never going to be. The purchase price of your soul is already paid for. Jesus paid for it with his blood. There's nothing for you to add to it with your money. Yo, your money is dirty, nasty, dingy paper. Do you understand that? I heard a joke one time of a guy who died, and, and this is not theologically correct by any means, but it makes a good point. A guy dies, and he's standing at the gates, and, and the father has sent an angel out to meet him, and he goes, hey, the father just wants you to know uh, that your, your, your heavenly dwelling is, is not quite done yet, so if you could just wait for just a few minutes and we'll let you bring one, go, go, go back and grab something. We'll let you bring it back with you and you can keep it in your house up here. Will that work? And the guy's like, sure. So he goes back and he grabs a briefcase full of gold bars. And he brings it back and he sees the angel. The angel's just curious. And the angel says, well, what'd you bring? And he opens the briefcase and he's so proud. And the angel looks at it and scratches his head and goes, you brought concrete? Like, we paved streets with that here. Why do you have that? It's useless. There is no amount of money on earth that God cares about at all. It means nothing to Him. Attempting to purchase your salvation with money is an insult to Jesus. Look at Acts chapter 8, verses 18 through 21. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not what? Right before God. That's what's important. It has nothing to do with your money. It has to do with your heart. Has Jesus changed you? Has Jesus saved you? Jesus doesn't want your money as much as he wants your heart. He wants your love. And if you love him, if you love his church, if you love the ministry he's got planned for his church, you're going to give. It's going to flow out of your love. And what's more, you're going to enjoy giving. And when you give out of love, you bring joy to God because that's what he does too. Love 
is the underlying principle behind every gift that God has given you. He gave you those gifts and talents and knowledge and, and resources because he loves you and because he loves his church and he wants you to love his church and he wants you to love each other and serve each other. And when you get rid of that love, everything God's given you just loses its value and loses its efficacy instantly. So Josh, I would like a clear definition of what that love looks like. We'll just keep on coming for the next eight weeks and I promise I'll give you one. So we're going to talk about the rest of this chapter. But y'all, I love you. I hope we love each other. I hope we love folks out there. And we care more about the love we have for God, for each other and for them than we care about anything we got, anything we know or anything we can do. The love that Christ has for us, that he showed us up there, that's what drew us to him. That's what saved us. That's what he intends us to have for each other and for those out there. And if we know Christ and we know the love of Christ, everything else will fall into place. Don't ever throw it aside. We're about to pray and we're about to, to have a chance for you to come and give your life to Christ and experience his love if you never have. So Joyce is going to come lead us in a couple verses of an invitation hymn. That's going to be Footsteps of Jesus. It's on the back of your bulletin. And if you need to come, we can't do the aisle like we normally do, so just wave at me, catch my eye, and I'll catch you after church. But don't leave here without coming to know the love that God has for you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.